Interestingly enough, what I want to talk about for a few minutes, it's not a new theme, it's not a new passage of Scripture, it is not a new subject, but maybe it'll bring a new touch to your heart and to your spirit. In the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, the 28th verse and following, it tells us about that event recorded also in the 10th chapter of Luke. And the reason that I'm doing this is because I think that next Sunday, I feel I, I will, I'm not sure at this point, but probably next Sunday morning I may be preaching on the subject of the Good Samaritan. I have preached on that before a number of times, but not in the way that I will this Sunday. I've been studying those parables uh, in, in some intensity and depth over the last a couple of three weeks, and that parable in particular, and it is filled with meanings that I'd never seen before and applications that I had never known before. And so tonight I want to use the passage of Scripture that introduces that parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think that for me at least, the number two parable in terms of the favorite parables. I believe for me, the most uh, significant story Jesus told, which is what a parable is, it's a story with a meaning that can be applied to life. It's a story from life that's a mirror of life and gives us a deeper insight into ourselves and to others. My favorite parable or story is that of the prodigal sons, the two boys who had the father who loved them unconditionally. The second parable, to me in terms of popularity and favorite, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. To many people, that is the favorite parable, their favorite parable. But the background of that parable I want to touch on and draw some ideas from that I hope and pray will be a help to you. One of the scribes came... What's a scribe? A scribe was a person who specialized in the record, in the law, in being certain that the record was kept and that the record was correct. And they were very, they, they were sort of CPAs of the Jewish law. They, they would be called lawyers today, but not in the same context as we understand the term lawyer. For the law, the practice of the law, uh, was very different in that day than it is in our day. We're talking here about religious law which, because it was a theocracy at one time, had uh, sociological and political implications. It was basically a religious law uh, that was applied to uh, community life. So a scribe, the closest analogy, I suppose, would be that of a lawyer. And a lawyer came, and her, having heard them, that is, Jesus and his questioners, having heard them reasoning together and determining that he answered them in a very uh, acceptable manner, answered them very well, he asked him, and here's a great question. Now this man knew how to ask a question. Now that's true of lawyers generally. They know how to ask a good question. It's also interesting to notice how often Jesus asks questions. We've often heard and said, and with a truth, that Jesus is the answer. That is true. But it is equally true that Jesus is sometimes the question. He is often the questioner. Very often he would answer a question with a question. He did that regularly. And he did that here. As he talked with this man. What, he said, is the, is the first commandment of all. 
Now that's a good question from a good lawyer. Now if you had only one question to ask Jesus, what would it be? That might be an interesting discussion sometime. If you had one question to ask him, what would it be? This man decided he would ask him what's the most important commandment. Jesus answered him. The first of all is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it, or it is a part of it. It is the flip side of that same commandment. It is this, namely this, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus goes back into the Old Testament and from two books of the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books, the book of Moses, he lifts out two statements and he puts them together. They do not occur together in the Old Testament, but Jesus brings them together and makes of them a single commandment with two applications. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the other commandment is a part of it. It is indivisible from it. It is the the Siamese twin to it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Let me point out in passing that Jesus added a word to the Old Testament commandment. If you'll go back and read in the Old Testament the passage of Scripture that Jesus quoted here, you will find that he added a word. In the Old Testament you will read, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Jesus added the word mind. He can do that, you know, because he inspired it in the first place. He is the author of the book, so he can go back and edit it and update it. You can't do that. I can't do that. No one should do that. But he can and does do that and does it here. He wants us to love God with our minds. The Apostle Paul picked up that idea and wrote in Philippians, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Not just let this heart be in you and let these emotions be in you and let this spirit be in you, but let this mind be in you. Jesus answering the Samaritan woman at the well at Sychar when she talked about worship, Jesus said, we must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Here he is wedding together, wedding those two ideas, bringing together again feeling or emotion and mind and thinking. Those two need to be joined together in worship. They need to be joined together in our relationship to God and to others. There are two equal and opposite heresies in the Christian faith, and one is the opposite of the other, namely, to ignore that part of Jesus' word about worship. Spirit. There are some people who worship the Lord in spirit, and only in spirit. Much feeling, much emotion, much good can come from that if it is directed and controlled and channeled by the mind. 
the mind of Christ, the mind that is inspired, the Word of God, that all things will, as the Scripture says, be done decently and in order. Some other people get so far off on the other side that their religion becomes all cerebral, all thinking, all definitions, all words, and they lose all emotion, all excitement, all energy. The two need to go together in any kind of meaningful relationship that is going to grow. We need to have spirit and we need to have truth. Having only emotion without uh, the control and the direction, the parameters of the mind can be destructive. Heat's good. It's marvelous to warm your house. But you need a thermostat. You don't want to burn it down. That can happen in our emotions. It's marvelous to cool our homes. But we don't want to freeze them. We don't want to make them cold and impersonal. And so here spirit and truth, here mind along with heart, are part of the way we love God. With all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and with all of your heart. Love God like that. That's interesting that Jesus puts that first because you'll never be able to love your neighbor as you love yourself until you love God first. It's even difficult after you love God first sometimes. Love God first or the love we have for our neighbor can be manipulative, can be selfish, can be cruel, can be hurtful, can be possessive, it can be destructive. We must love God first to have the right kind of love for ourselves so that we will have the right kind of love for our neighbor. That's what he is saying here. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. Frankly, I wish that uh, Jesus had stopped while he was still ahead. I wish he'd stopped with the loving God business and not gotten into this loving your neighbor as you love yourself because I find it a lot easier to love God than I do some people. I mean, I can say, yes, Lord, I love you. I love you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. Lord, you know how much I love you. And it would be so nice to be able to stop there and think that we were suddenly kind of spiritual little Jack Horners, if I may pick up on Roger. Little Jack Horners, what good boys we are. What good Christians we are. We're going to be voted the outstanding Christian of the month. Maybe the most valuable Christian of the year. Because we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, but the other part of that commandment, turn it over because it's indivisible, inseparable, and the second is like it, namely this. You'll love your neighbor as you love yourself. As you love yourself. Did you hear that? You're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that if you don't have the proper kind of love for yourself, you're never going to be able to have the proper kind of love for your neighbor. If you love the, your neighbor the way you love yourself, if you don't have the proper attitude toward yourself, how can you have the proper attitude toward your neighbor? You can't. And the only way you and I can get the proper attitude toward ourselves is to begin to see ourselves 
through the love of God. We need to see ourselves as individuals loved by Almighty God unconditionally. And then when we see ourselves like that, it's not a matter of vanity. It's not a matter of pride. It's not a matter of egotism. But suddenly we see ourselves as objects of the love of God. And if God loves us, we're worth something. Whatever we may think about ourselves at times or whatever other people may think about us or try to make us feel about ourselves, it's what God thinks about us that counts. And God says he loves us and that makes me something. However down on myself I might be and however discouraged I might be about some aspects of my life, I am still a creature of God loved unconditionally by Him that makes me something and it makes you something. And when I see myself then as the recipient of the unconditional love of God, it changes the attitude I have about me and when it changes the attitude I have about me, it changes the attitude I have about you. As Doug Homershold, that great uh, general secretary of the United Nations, killed tragically in the plane crash in Africa many years ago in his book, Markings, which I would recommend if you've never read it, said, No man at war with himself can help but be at war with those around him. That's right. Any man who hates himself is going to spread that hatred on those around him. He may disguise it as love. He may camouflage it as caring. We will all do that to try to gain accolades and praise. But if we are not right with God in our hearts and see ourselves as the objects of God's love, we're never going to have anything more than a selfish and manipulative attitude toward others. And only as we love ourselves as God loves us can we begin to love each other. So the problem with some Christianity and with some of us is that we begin with trying to love our neighbor without first loving God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and without having a new attitude and a new idea about ourselves and having a new relationship with ourselves so that we might have a better and new relationship with those around us. Now we're ready, he said, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now I must confess that even with Christ in my heart and in my life, and maybe you have the same difficulty, I find it a lot easier to sing, My Jesus, I love thee, than to say to some people, my friend, I love thee. Even harder. My enemy, I love thee. You say, Bugner, I can't do that. Well, I can't do that either, but Jesus said that we were to do that. And he wouldn't prescribe something like that if he didn't provide the capacity to do it. Jesus said, what, what's so big about praying for your friends? I mean, everybody does that. Pharisees do that. They pray for their friends. Pray for those who hate you and despitefully use you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Pray for your enemies. Now, that's tough. So that's why in the book of Luke and the, the account recorded by Luke, this lawyer had another question. He suddenly saw this was getting pretty sticky. This was suddenly bordering on the impossible without a change of heart. And there's some people who will do almost anything but change their heart. They'll be religious, they'll go to church, they'll be Pharisees, they'll read the Bible. We'll do almost anything but let Christ change our hearts. Take away our hates and fill us with love and get us to pray for people. Even when we don't like them or agree with them. So this lawyer said... 
Wait just a moment. Time out. Uh, who is my neighbor? I mean, if I am to love my neighbor as I love myself, wait a minute. Let's qualify this thing. Who's my neighbor? And it was when he asked that question that Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And I didn't realize until the last few weeks that I've been reading that and studying that for nearly, goodness, nearly half a century. Can you believe that? My Lance. And suddenly I'm seeing some things there I'd never seen before. That is one of the most dramatic statements Jesus ever made when he told the story about the Good Samaritan. It's not just a little simple story about being good to a guy who got hurt. Oh my, anybody can do that. Most of us would do that. It is much deeper than that, much more complicated than that, much more revolutionary than that. It reflects an attitudinal change that reaches all the way down to the soles of your feet. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Let me summarize this idea using Jesus' statement. We'll get to the Good Samaritan, the Lord willing, next Sunday or the Sunday afterwards. How do we do this? How do we love our neighbor as we love ourselves? I've told this story before. Some of you have heard it. Maybe you won't mind if I tell it again. Um, when Lisa was, our daughter was little, I don't know how old she is, about six years old. Martha's giving me the signal down here. She's about six years old. And uh, she, had her, she had real short hair then. And uh, she's 22 now, so that's been a few years ago. We, uh, let me back up a little bit. We had in our neighborhood at the time, living diagonally across the street from us, a little boy about Lisa's age named Little Robert. I don't know why they called him Little. Everything about him was colossal. I mean, everything he did was call out the National Guard time. I mean, this kid was a, he was a cyclone. He was an earthquake. He was, I mean, he made, he made Dennis the Menace look like Mother Teresa. He was something else. Good kid, but man, he was something on wheels. And we were going home Sunday school one Sunday in church, and Lisa was with us. I don't know where the boys were. They were with someone else. Some dear church member had had the nerve to invite them home for the afternoon, I suppose, was what's happened, what happened. Anyway, Lisa was in the back seat standing uh, between us, Martha and me, and six years old, and her hair short. And I thought I'd ask her a little bit about what went on in church in her Sunday school that Sunday. And I said, Lisa, uh, what was the memory verse in Sunday school today? You have a memory verse in Sunday school? Do you still have memory verses in Sunday school? Do you go to Sunday school? Do you have a memory verse? The children's divisions, departments have... You've got a memory verse. What was yours today? Do you remember? That's okay. I don't remember either. And I was here. Do you remember yours? What? That is terrific. You clever her a hand. That's marvelous. That is wonderful. See why it's important to be in Sunday school? 
That's good. Well, Lisa was in Sunday school, and I said, Lisa, what was the memory verse? And she got kind of serious, and she said, uh, she didn't know I was looking at her. I could see her in the rearview mirror, because she was standing right behind us in the center. She said, uh, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. I said, well, Lisa, what, what do you think about that? She stood there, and I could just see her thinking in the mirror. She said, does that mean, good lawyer, does that mean that I have got to love little Robert as much as I love Mother and you and Mike and Steve and Princess, our dog? And uh, I said, well, Lisa... That's what Jesus said. Oh, you see her thinking, her eyes got kind of narrow, and when she'd be a little disturbed, she'd kind of shake her head, kind of like a, a horse or a dog just kind of. Her hair just flipped. Kind of like when you shiver. And she said, more to, her, to herself than to us, no way. Well, I didn't want her to see me smiling, but I felt exactly like that at times. No way. I mean, Lord, if you knew my neighbor the way I know my neighbor, there's no way. Who is your neighbor? Well, to summarize the parable Jesus told your neighbor is anybody around you who needs a word of encouragement, needs some help. That's what it amounts to. As simple as I know it, it's anybody. Your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your brother, your sister. Anybody, not just the person who lives next door, they may be living next door in the same house with you. Theoretically, psychologically, emotionally. Anybody who needs a hand, a help, a word. That's what it comes down to. I've I've discovered something else about observing myself and life, that it's a lot easier to love my neighbors if they're a long way off than if they're up close. I mean, I can pray for the Russians like crazy. I mean, I can just love them all over, you know, just, until you go over there to Moscow and get held by the police for four hours, and then you sit there in that little room and try to answer questions of why you brought these 43 Bibles. It's harder to pray for them. You get angry and you get resistant. A lot easier for me to pray for what's going on in our enemies in Nicaragua or whoever they are or wherever they are than it is to pray for my neighbor whose dog turns over my trash can. I mean, realistically, it's a lot easier to pray for people who create problems for us when they're a long way off, when they're impersonal, when we don't really know them. And the closer they get to us in terms of proximity to our minds, to our bodies, and to our living, the more difficult it is. Jesus understood that. So it doesn't qualify the answer at all. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Very quickly, how do you love yourself then? Give you three words. You maybe have heard them before. C.S. Lewis writes about this. It helps me. It's a little formula. Maybe it'll help you. First way I love myself is I love myself unemotionally. 
In the New Testament, the word love is not an emotional word. It's an attitudinal word. It doesn't have anything to do with feeling. It has everything to do with attitude. Agape doesn't have anything to do with goosebumps and chills running up and down your spine. Agape is attitude. 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 That's the way I love myself. That's the way you love yourself, I imagine. We are not in love with ourselves. We don't look at ourselves and get goosebumps. If we look at ourselves early enough in the morning, we get Halloween. <laughs> we get a shock. You don't get up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror and say, Oh, oh my. Mm. You turned me on. Oh, oh. Can you imagine what the people are hearing this tape way over in Africa think about these sounds that I'm making up here and wonder what in the world we're doing here? I'm making funny faces, folks. Those of you who are listening to this tape in far off Timbuktu or wherever. Uh, I am not in love with myself. I don't look at myself and have you don't you're not in love with yourself. What does it mean to love yourself? You love yourself unemotionally. What it means is, irrespective of how you look or what other people say about you, you're still on your side. It's not an emotional feeling, it's an attitudinal feeling. And even though you don't like the way you, maybe you don't like the way you look and you don't feel well, you're still going to do the best you can with what you've got. And you comb it or you shave it or you put lipstick on it or you do whatever you can to make it look better for everybody else because you really do care about others. And then you go out doing the best you can with what you've got and you still would like to change the shape of your nose or the color of your eyes or the length of your hair or how tall you are, one of those things, but that doesn't have a thing in the world to do with the fact that your attitude is pro-you. I am on my side and I'm going to do the best I can with what I've got to make this a significant day in my life. But it's an unemotional feeling. It's an attitude you have. You've done it so often it's become second nature, but you're going to do it again in the morning. And when you do it in the morning, think about it. Your love for yourself is not emotional. It is attitudinal. It is also unconditional. Unemotional, unconditional. It doesn't make any difference whether you like yourself or not. You're still on your side, right? doesn't make any difference what anybody else says about you. You're still on your side. You may have fouled up. You may have messed up your life in some ways, or you think you have, and you think everybody is down on you and nobody loves you. But you still are on your side unconditionally. Now, most of the time, our love for other people is conditional. When I say most of the time, I mean, let's be honest, like 99 and 99, 99.99. We're conditional in our love. I love you if you love me. I love you if you act the way I want you to act. I love you if you do what I want you to do. I love you if you behave in a certain way that's acceptable to me. God's love's not like that. And the love you have for yourself is not like that. 
I don't care what you've done today. I don't care what horrible thoughts you might have had or what terrible deeds you might have done today. I venture to say, if this building starts to fall down, you're going to try to save yourself. You're not going to sit here and say, oh, I'm terrible. I'm not worth saving. I'm no good. I'm worthless. Nothing you've done in your lifetime is going to keep you from trying to get out of this building if that roof starts falling in. If we had a California earthquake here, I won't tell you, my friend, where I'd go. I'd go out that door as fast as I could, right across that beautiful piano. We'd have to have it refinished. I don't care if I thought the sermon this morning was horrible, I didn't do good, and I wish I could do it over, and I was all upset about the NFL strike or whatever it is, and I'm down on myself. I don't care about any of that stuff. If this place starts to go down, I'm going to go out. Because I'm on my side. We've heard, many of us, most of our lives, that, that Jesus separates us from our sin. He loves the sinner and he hates the sin. Have you ever heard that? I guess most of us have. He loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. God does that. I do that with me. I do that with me. I don't like those things in my life that I know are wrong and need to be changed or improved. I don't like those things, but I'm still on my side. I still love me when I don't love what I do or what I say. I always separate me from my sin. Sure. And I always say, if you only knew what was going on in me and what I was thinking, if you only knew the circumstances, if you only knew how tired I was, if you only knew, if you only knew, then you would separate me from my sin just like I separate me from my sin. But we do that for ourselves, but we don't do it for each other, do we? No, sir, man, we put sin and sinner together and we get mad at one and the same. I don't have any trouble separating me from my sin, but I have a lot of trouble separating you from your sin. And loving you when I don't like what you do, loving you when I don't agree with the way you treat other people, or the way you treat me, or things you might say. Very conditional, aren't we? In our love for other people. You see how much difference there would be in the world if we loved each other unconditionally, like we love ourselves? You say, wait a minute, Buckner, people would start misunderstanding. They would think you were approving of what the person did. Wait a minute, wait a minute, don't start jumping inside my motives and trying to tear them all apart. You don't know what's going on in me. I don't know what's going on inside of you. People did that with Jesus. Hey, he's running around with these people. That means he's like them. He agrees with them. He's horrible. He's detestable. He didn't defend himself at all. He just knew that those people hadn't come yet to know and love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they didn't love their neighbors. They loved themselves or they'd be able to separate their neighbor's sin from themselves and deplore that which they were doing like to the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. But I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. But change your behavior. It's not working for you. My you talk about the power of redemption and the power of love, the power of that kind of unconditional love to help people mount up with wings as eagles and to run and not be weary and to walk and not faint, to really live. 
Think what happened in the church. I'm not talking about just this one. I'm talking about Christians everywhere. Look, we keep talking about the problems in the world. We've got to get the problems of the world set right. We've got to get more Christians into politics. And we've got to get more Christians in public life and all this sort of thing. I think we need to get more Christians in the church. We're talking about what the world needs and we can't love each other. We're talking about the problems between Iran and Iraq and this special interest group and that special interest group in America and thousands, even millions of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ don't even love each other. I tell you, we'd have a revival overnight in America if all of God's people would start loving each other the way Jesus said we were to love each other. Unconditionally, unemotionally, as we love ourselves. And finally, spontaneously. I don't have to decide whether or not I'm on my side. I mean, just, it's there. I don't have to get up in the morning and say, Oh, I don't know whether I'm going to be on my side today or not. Gosh, I feel bad. I ate Mexican food last night. And uh, just terrible things are happening. And I just messed up and said some things I wish I hadn't said. and Didn't do some things I should have done. I, I don't know whether I'm going to love me today or not. It's spontaneous. It's like that. Quick illustration. My old friend Don Smith's down here. My new friend Don Smith's back there. So I want to talk about this old one for a while, for a minute. Use this illustration. Uh, Don and, uh, suppose Don was in the same hotel with uh, Martha and me and our kids, we were down one end of the hotel on the same floor, and Don was down at the other end. And he used to travel a lot, and uh, as I used to travel a lot in revival meetings, and suppose we were in the same hotel at the same time, and Don's way down there, 10 or 12 rooms away, and the hotel caught on fire in the night. I've been in two hotel fires, neither one of them were, were real serious, but they are terribly frightening. Smell smoke in the middle of the night. Once in St. Louis and another time in Richmond, Virginia. Scary. Smoke curling under the door. Suppose that happened in this hotel with Don down the hall. I thought, my goodness. Martha, wake up. Don't sit up because it may be real hot. You don't want to sit up. It's burning in this hotel can be hot enough just a foot above your head to kill you if you sit straight up. Remember that. If you're ever in a room and you think it's on fire, don't sit up. It can dry up all the fluids in your head and you'll die on the spot. Roll out on the floor because that smoke rises as, that, as you know as the heat rises. So put your hand up. That's what the folks in fire prevention will tell you. Put your hand up before you sit up. See whether it's hot enough. I said, okay, let's get out of here. It's not real bad yet. Open the door and smoke pours in. Mike, Steve, Lisa, wake up. Come on, we got to go. We get out there in the hall and I look down there toward Don's room and boy, it's just a raging inferno down there. The heat and the fire and the smoke. We run this way toward the stairway and I suddenly think about Don. Oh, oh my goodness. Don is down to the other end on the other side of that fire. Oh, hey Mike, get on the phone. See if you can get his room. Call the operator and see if they can be sure he's awake. Maybe he's out of here. I'm sure he's out of here. Well, I'm not sure. Try to get him on it. Hey, Don. 
Donna, you down there? My man. Martha, Mike, or Steve, or Lisa were down there. I'd, I'd make a go for it, but you know. I love Don and all that, but, uh, Don! Mike, did you get him? Oh, the phone's not working. Mm. Well, he's had a full life. He's done a lot of good in the world. Lord, take care of Don. Be with him. Now, if I were down the end of the hall, I'd try to get me out. And if Martha and Mike and Steve and Lisa were down the other end of the hall, I, I've never had to do this, but I'd do this. I'd run through fire to get to them. I believe you would too. Your husband, your wife, your children. But suddenly, when it moves outside that very select circle, my love gets very conditional. What it comes down to is that we don't love other people the way we love ourselves. We just don't do it. And we can't do it. We can't do it. I can never make myself do that. I can, I can pretend. I can try to impress you that I feel that way. But I can never do that until... I let God's love love you through me until I become a channel and say, now God, if it's left up to me, I won't love him like that. I won't love him or her unemotionally and unconditionally and spontaneously. I can't do that. It's just not in me to do that. The old man Adam is still too much a part of my life. Selfishness is still too much a part of my thinking and feeling to do that. Lord, I can't do it unless you love that person through me. And so may I be so filled with your love that it will just flow through me and I won't even be conscious of it. But coming out on the other end will be that kind of unemotional, unconditional, spontaneous kind of love for others that you have for me and that you have for the whole world and that you want to share with the whole world through those of us who claim to love you, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. We're back where we started, and maybe we need to get a fresh start. Loving God, loving ourselves, and loving others. I want to ask you to do something. I want to join you in doing it. I want you to pray for somebody that you don't like. I don't want you to pray out loud about it. I'm just If you don't have anybody like that to pray for, ask your neighbor for a name. You say, Bugner, I, I don't feel like praying for them. I know. I know that. Jesus didn't ask you if you felt like praying for them. He just said, do it. I want to tell you what will happen. If you'll pray for your enemy, your neighbor, whoever it is, it may be causing you problems, somebody at work, maybe it's a family problem, maybe it's a business situation, maybe it's a neighborhood stress, I don't know what it is. But when you pray for other people, 
it changes the relationship. It will do it. Now that doesn't mean that the next day they're going to have a dramatic conversion and come up and throw their arms around you and love you. They may never do that. But it will be a different kind of relationship. And that person won't know it, but something will be different in the way you relate to them after you start praying for them. Because you're changed. And once I'm changed, then my whole world begins to be influenced by that change. Slowly, subtly, but very powerfully. That can happen in your school, in your home, in your work. Got somebody that bugs you, that gets under your skin, that irritates the daylights out of you, pray for them. Just say, Lord, my heart's not in this. I don't really feel like doing this. I don't like this person. And I would really rather get even than anything in the world. But I'm going to pray for them. And I want to ask you to help me to pray for them. Like you prayed for your enemies. You even prayed for the people who were killing you on the cross. Now I can't do that. And Lord, I'll never be able to do it unless you do it in me. So Lord, here I am with all of my hang-ups and all of my fears about even praying this prayer. But because you said to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask your love to begin to change my attitude and help me to try it again in the morning and help me to try it again the next day. And Lord, help me to let you love that person through me unemotionally and unconditionally and spontaneously. See what happens. We're going to sing an invitation hymn. We're going to sing Just As I Am, which we sing often. I like it because it says very simply the way we can come. The only way we can come. Just as we are. I want to be right here. If you come, trust in Christ, come. Moving your membership into the life of this church to help us love each other more and to pray for each other more and to love the world more, to care more for others, then you come. Come maybe in rededication of your life. Come to make some prayer. You may want to come here and kneel and pray privately. Do that and return to your seat. Whatever you feel impressed to do. We sing for just a minute or two. You pray. You come. Let's stand and let's sing.